Today's episode may not be suitable for children under 12. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, where great stories are read, discussed, and given their due honor. I'm your host, John Carlo, and we'll be reading two more stories by H.H. Monroe, also known by pen name Saki. So the first story we're reading today is called Sredni Vashtar, and then we'll read The Open Window. I'm reading two stories today because these are both fairly short, and plus I just really like Saki and want you to like him too. So here is Sredni Vashtar. Conradin was 10 years old, and the doctor had pronounced his professional opinion that the boy would not live another five years. The doctor was silky and effete and counted for little, but his opinion was endorsed by Mrs. de Rapp, who counted for nearly everything. Mrs. de Rapp was Conradin's cousin and guardian, and in his eyes she represented those three-fifths of the world that are necessary and disagreeable and real. The other two-fifths, in perpetual antagonism to the foregoing, were summed up in himself and his imagination. One of these days Conradin supposed he would succumb to the mastering pressure of wearisome necessary things, such as illness and coddling restrictions and drawn-out dullness. Without his imagination, which was rampant under the spur of loneliness, he would have succumbed long ago. Mrs. de Rapp would never, in her honestest moments, have confessed to herself that she disliked Conradin, though she might have been dimly aware that thwarting him for his good was a duty which she did not find particularly irksome. Conradin hated her with a desperate sincerity which he was perfectly able to mask. Such few pleasures as he could contrive for himself gained an added relish from the likelihood that they would be displeasing to his guardian, and from the realm of his imagination she was locked out, an unclean thing which should find no entrance. In the dull, cheerless garden, overlooked by so many windows that were ready to open with a message not to do this or that, or a reminder that medicines were due, he found little attraction. The few fruit trees that it contained were set jealously apart from his plucking, as though they were rare specimens of their kind blooming in an arid waste. It would probably have been difficult to find a market gardener who would have offered ten shillings for their entire yearly produce. In a forgotten corner, however, almost hidden behind a dismal shrubbery, was a disused tool shed of respectable proportions, and within its walls Conradin found a haven, something that took on the varying aspects of a playroom and a cathedral. He had peopled it with a legion of familiar phantoms, evoked partly from fragments of history and partly from his own brain. But it also boasted two inmates of flesh and blood. In one corner lived the ragged, plumaged Houdan hen, on which the boy lavished an affection that had scarcely another outlet. Further back in the gloom stood a large hutch divided into two compartments, one of which was fronted with close iron bars. This was the abode of a large polecat ferret which a friendly butcher boy had once smuggled, cage and all, into its present quarters, in exchange for a long, secreted hoard of small silver. Conradin was dreadfully afraid of the lithe, sharp-fanged beast, 
but it was his most treasured possession. Its very presence in the tool shed was a secret and fearful joy to be kept scrupulously from the knowledge of the woman, as he privately dubbed his cousin. And one day, out of heaven knows what material, he spun the beast a wonderful name, and from that moment it grew into a god and a religion. The woman indulged in religion once a week at a church nearby and took Conradin with her, but to him the church service was an alien rite in the house of Rimen. Every Thursday, in the dim and musty silence of the tool shed, he worshipped with mystic and elaborate ceremonial before the wooden hutch where dwelt Sredni Vashtar, the great ferret. Red flowers in their season and scarlet berries in the wintertime were offered at his shrine, for he was a god who laid some special stress on the fierce, impatient side of things, as opposed to the woman's religion, which, as far as Conradin could observe, went to great lengths to the contrary direction, and on great festivals powdered nutmeg was strewn in front of his hutch, an important feature of the offering being that the nutmeg had to be stolen. These festivals were of irregular occurrence, and were chiefly appointed to celebrate some passing event. On one occasion, when Mrs. de Rapp suffered from acute toothache for three days, Conradin kept up the festival during the entire three days and almost succeeded in persuading himself that Sredni Vashtar was personally responsible for the toothache. If the malady had lasted for another day, the supply of nutmeg would have given out. The Houdan hen was never drawn into the cult of Sredni Vashtar. Conradin had long ago settled that she was an Anabaptist. He did not pretend to have the remotest knowledge of what an Anabaptist was, but he privately hoped that it was dashing and not very respectable. Mrs. de Rapp was the ground plan on which he based and detested all respectability. After a while, Conradin's absorption in the tool shed began to attract the notice of his guardian. It is not good for him to be pottering down there in all weathers, she promptly decided, and at breakfast one morning she announced that the Houdan hen had been sold and taken away overnight. With her short-sighted eyes, she peered at Conradin, waiting for an outbreak of rage and sorrow, which she was ready to rebuke with a flow of excellent precepts and reasoning. But Conradin said nothing. There was nothing to be said. Something, perhaps, in his white-set face gave her a momentary qualm, for the ground that it was bad for him, also because the making of it gave trouble, a deadly offense in the middle-class feminine eye. I thought you liked toast, she exclaimed, with an injured air, observing that he did not touch it. Sometimes, said Conradin, in the shed that evening there was an innovation in the worship of the hutch god. Conradin had been wont to chant his praises. Tonight he asked a boon. Do one thing for me, Sredni Vashtar. The thing was not specified, as Sredni Vashtar was a god he must be supposed to know, and choking back a sob as he looked at that other empty corner, Conradin went back to the world he so hated. And every night, in the welcome darkness of his bedroom, and every evening in the dusk of the tool shed, Conradin's bitter litany went up. Do one thing for me, Sredni Vashtar. Mrs. Durop noticed that the visits to the shed did not cease, and one day she made a further journey of inspection. What are you keeping in that locked hut, she asked. I believe it's guinea pigs. I'll have them all cleared away. Conradin shut his lips tight, but the woman ransacked his bedroom till she found the carefully hidden key, and forthwith marched down to the shed to complete her discovery. It was a cold afternoon, and Conradin had been bidden to keep to the house. From the furthest window of the dining room, the door of the shed could just be seen beyond the corner of the shrubbery, and there Conradin stationed himself, 
He saw the woman enter, and then he imagined her opening the door of the sacred hutch and peering down with her short-sighted eyes into the thick straw bed where his god lay hidden. Perhaps she would prod at the straw in her clumsy impatience, and Conradin fervently breathed his prayer for the last time, but he knew as he prayed that he did not believe. He knew that the woman would come out presently with that pursed smile he loathed so well on her face, and that in an hour or two the gardener would carry away his wonderful god, a god no longer, but a simple brown ferret in a hutch, and he knew that the woman would triumph always as she triumphed now, and that he would grow ever more sickly under her pestering and domineering and superior wisdom, till one day nothing would matter much more with him, and the doctor would be proved right, and in the sting and misery of his defeat he began to chant loudly and defiantly the hymn of his threatened idol. Sredni Vashtar went forth. His thoughts were red thoughts, and his teeth were white. His enemies called for peace, but he brought them death. Sredni Vashtar the Beautiful. And then, of a sudden, he stopped his chanting and drew closer to the window pane. The door of the shed still stood ajar, as it had been left, and the minutes were slipping by. They were long minutes, but they slipped by, nevertheless. He watched the starlings running and flying in little parties across the lawn. He counted them over and over again, with one eye always on that swinging door. A sour-faced maid came in to lay the table for tea, and still Conradin stood and waited and watched. Hope had crept by inches into his heart, and now a look of triumph began to blaze in his eyes that had only known the wistful patience of defeat. Under his breath, with a furtive exultation, he began once again the paean of victory and devastation, and presently his eyes were rewarded. Out through the doorway came a long, low, yellow and brown beast, with eyes a-blink at the waning daylight, and dark wet stains around the fur of jaws and throat. Conradin dropped on his knees. The great polecat ferret made its way down to a small brook at the foot of the garden, drank for a moment, then crossed a little plank bridge and was lost to sight in the bushes. Such was the passing of Sredni Vashtar. "'Tea is ready,' said the sour-faced maid. "'Where is the mistress?' "'She went down to the shed some time ago,' said Conradin. And while the maid went to summon her mistress to tea, Conradin fished a toasting fork out of the sideboard drawer and proceeded to toast himself a piece of bread. And during the toasting of it and the buttering of it with much butter and the slow enjoyment of eating it, Conradin listened to the noises and silences which fell in quick spasms beyond the dining-room door the loud foolish screaming of the maid, the answering chorus of wondering ejaculations from the kitchen region, the scuttering footsteps and hurried embassies for outside help, and then, after a lull, the sacred sobbings and the shuffling tread of those who bore a heavy burden into the house. "'Whoever will break it to the poor child, I couldn't for the life of me!' exclaimed a shrill voice, and while they debated the matter among themselves, Conradin made himself another piece of toast." So that is Sredni Vashtar. Kind of creepy, kind of funny at the same time. Explores religion, explores wishful thinking and willing things into reality. Conradin seems sort of just mischievous in the beginning, but by the end, almost sinister. <laughs> kind of a funny story. The next story is called The Open Window. My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Nuttle, said a very self-possessed young lady of 15. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttle endeavored to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. 
You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Mrs. Sappleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. "'Do you know many of the people around here?' asked the niece, when she judged that they had sufficient silent communion. "'Hardly a soul,' said Frampton. "'My sister was staying here, at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here.' He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. "'Then you know practically nothing about my aunt,' pursued the self-possessed young lady." Only her name and address, admitted the caller. He was wondering whether Mrs. Sappleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy? asked Frampton. Somehow in this restful country, spot tragedy seemed out of place. You may wonder why we keep that window wide open in an October afternoon, said the niece indicating a large French window that opened onto a lawn. "'It is quite warm for the time of the year,' said Frampton. "'But has that window got anything to do with the tragedy?' Out through that window, three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back. In crossing the moor to their favorite snipe shooting ground, they were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog. It had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning.' Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day, they and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing, Birdie, why do you bound? as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know sometimes on still, quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk in through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late and making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. She has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you don't mind the open window, said Mrs. Sappleton briskly. My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpets. So like you men folk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerfully about the shooting and the scarcity of birds and the prospects for duck in the winter. To Frampton, it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk on to a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window and the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest in absence of mental excitement and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton, who labored under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailments and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Mrs. Sappleton, in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. "'Here they are at last,' she cried, "'just in time for tea, and don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes. 
Frampton shivered slightly and turned towards the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the window with dazed horror in her eyes. In a chill shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulders. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk. I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid an imminent collision. "'Here we are, my dear,' said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. "'Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up?' "'A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nuttle,' said Mrs. Sappleton, "'could only talk about his illnesses and dashed off without a word of goodbye or apology when you arrived.' One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone their nerve. Romance at short notice was her specialty. And that was The Open Window, another story about a child with an overactive imagination, though not quite as evil as Conradin and Sredni Vashtar. But I hope you see why I love Saki so much. I love the ending of The Open Window, where the guys come in, and they're wondering what happened to Mr. Nuttle, and Vera just goes into another made-up story about how uh, he was on the banks of the Ganges with a pack of pariah dogs and had to spend his night in a grave. So, very funny story. You can, of course, find Saki, H.H. Monroe, wherever books are sold or borrowed. He has a ton of great short stories. We'll do one more next week, and then we'll move on to another author. Also, if you yourself have written a story you'd like me to read on the show, please email it to storykingpodcast at gmail.com. If I like it, I just might read it. Try to keep it between one to 3,000 words. I personally enjoy speculative fiction if you want to win me over, but I won't tell you what to write. Again, that's storykingpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a part of what we're doing on The Story King, please consider becoming a patron. You can visit my page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Story King. The link will be in the show notes as well. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a very practical and tangible way to support your favorite content creators. Podcasts and books take a great deal of time and resources to produce. So if you appreciate what we're doing with The Story King, becoming a patron would go a long way. On our Patreon page, there are three monthly subscription tiers available. At the $5 tier, you get immediate access to the Story King Podcast Exclusive Edition, where I'll be reading some of my own stories, as well as famous ones that are too long for the main show. At the $10 tier, you of course get access to the private podcast, but you'll also receive an autographed copy of every book I release, such as my latest novella, Darren DeLuza and the Devil. And lastly, there's the $20 option, which includes everything in the first two tiers, but it also provides a way for you to promote your own work on the Story King podcast. So if you've written a book or have a blog, I'll feature it on one of my episodes and include a three to five minute phone interview. Please consider becoming a Story King patron and get access to all the exclusive content. My page is patreon.com forward slash the Story King. You can follow us on YouTube and Twitter. The links will be in the show notes. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash Story King Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, where great stories are read, discussed, and given their due honor. Please join us next week for another great story. Until then. 